0: I'd read that when an elephant looks as if it's dying, the other elephants in the herd do anything and everything they can to keep the elephant alive. Bringing him or her food, spraying them with water, touching and stroking with their trunks, even trying to make love. There was that quality about us, determined that no one else was going to die. We had to make sure each other lived. That's certainly how I felt about it. I knew that for him, suicide was enough of an option for him to talk about it. And I wanted to obliterate that option from his world, for him to feel that life was worth living. I wanted him to open up to the world, travel, meet new people, escape the pressure from his parents, just for a while, as he was certain to go back there. It was in his blood, his lungs, his genes. He needed to go away long enough to find himself, so that when he came back, he was choosing the farm from a wholehearted perspective.
1: Hello there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. Ozzy is in the studio with me. He's a little antsy because there's sunshine and we haven't gone out for a walk yet, but hopefully he, he will behave. This is episode seven of season two. In today's podcast, I'm having a discussion with a nonfiction author from the UK, originally from Yorkshire. She now lives in Sussex. Gosh, I don't get to say that often. <laughs> Before writing, "No Place to Lie," she was a well-known lawyer, mediator, author, and trainer. She's retired from Gordon's Partnership LLP. "No Place to Lie" is not her first publication. She has written other novels. I won't. I shouldn't say novels. Other publications. Um, with respect to her legal training. She loves dogs as much as I do, and she's had a tough decision of breaking the news to her dog Ziggy that he is not going to be the star of her YouTube channel Hello, It's Better to Talk. From across the pond, where I understand they have just had a little bit of snow, Helen Garlick, welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room on Vancouver Island.
0: Hi there, Joe. It's just—it's absolutely lovely to be here. I mean, I can, yeah, I feel as if I can hardly claim that what we've got is snow, as it's just a few little, tiny little flakes. But for some reason, uh, our Wi-Fi went down an hour ago, so I'm so pleased it's come back up again. We blame everyone good, though, even though it, you know we've hardly had any. Anyway, great
1: to be here. Well, that's good. I'm—I'm I'm sure um, in Canada, those who live on the east coast look at us on the West coast and laugh when we kind of go in a panic because we start seeing the white stuff falling from the sky. <laughs> <laughs> so the, you, oh, I can't imagine the, how do I say? I don't, I want to say excitement. I want to say, uh, I don't want to say apprehension, but your book was just released Thursday, February 4th. And I've been wondering, how's the reception been? How's the feedback been? Um, well, you know, it's a funny thing, uh,
0: launching a book in the middle of a pandemic and uh, lo- and lockdown. So there's no parties. Um, there's no book signings. Everything takes place in our home, which is in the Sussex countryside on, on the edge of the South Downs. So, there's nothing kind of physical happening, but mentally there's been a lot of ha- things happening for me. And emotionally, I suppose it's been the culmination of 40 years to make a promise that I to meet a promise that I made to myself back in 1981 to to write this book. So I'm so happy I've got it done. I'm kind of, you know, <laughs> so terrified about his reception to it to an extent, excited when people write I me and I've had. So many emails, messages, um, all sorts of things. I, this book seems to be touching people incredibly deeply, um, for which I feel blessed and honoured. So I am loving the emotional, emotional reaction. Um, and in, in fact, what's happened over here in the UK is that although it was launched on Thursday, um by yesterday all of the amazon stocks had run out so uh on amazon it's showing that it won't be if you order today you won't get it until march so that's
1: kind of incredible (laughs) that's awesome that is awesome well yeah you you're very you're honest and i'd say i like to say the word raw Mm-hmm. with your emotions and um let's get let's get into no place to lie for sure yeah sure now, it is a memoir mm-hmm. but it's would you say it's also a little bit of creative non-fiction because there are chapters in both your father's point of view and he's no longer with us and David's point of view who who yeah we're going to get into that um were those chapters difficult to write and did you have any sort of reference materials to draw upon?
0: Um, Well you know I think I mean I also wrote a chapter from my mum's point of view too and uh, then there's a chapter about the kind of love interest of the story a guy who I've called Nick Kane in in the book Um, but I I suppose I had a very kind of I mean I was the only survivor in our family between myself and, and my sibling my younger brother David and my parents relied on me a lot and we had a kind of close relationship and obviously what happened to David we talked about a lot and I I really did understand their their viewpoints so I I think from their perspectives that felt like it was you know that quite accurate and then the, I've done an I've done a also a, a chapter from my younger brother's viewpoint in the few moments before he died, which obviously has come out of my imagination. Um, but when I wrote it, I, this may sound weird, but I really felt as if I was channeling my brother. And then later on, Joe, I recorded an audio book. Um, in I, I did it myself because I appeared on uh, a program over here called Woman's Hour on, on Radio 4. And my publishers, after that, we had such an extraordinary reaction from it. After the first time I publicly talked about these secrets that my publisher said, you've got to do the book, Helen. So I went, oh, OK. <laughs> uh, so when I was recording that chapter, the chapter about my brother, um, funny enough, there was a photographer in the building, in the audio um, recording building. And she uh, she was watching me and the producer was there. And I spoke this chapter from my brother's perspective I didn't falter I didn't have to redo any of it and again it felt like he was kind of coming through me Um, and when I looked up and I finished the chapter I looked up to the producer and this lovely girl who's the photographer and they're both crying and they said oh that's that was magnificent so I you know I mean there are there are many levels aren't there that we can connect with people other than the pure physical and I think it's so on I you know I don't even know have the words for it whether it's a soul level or a spirit level I really felt as if I was very strongly connected to my brother and it's for him that I've written yeah. this book so you know um, I'm, I'm grateful to have had that connection and you know he kind of pops in and out of my life from time to time I um, not not that often nowadays but it's very weird when he's here because I can smell him <laughs> um, Aww. Aww. I'm saying that as you know a lawyer with 35 years experience so uh, I'm kind of yeah. but uh, yeah you know he he's kind of sometimes around
1: which is really nice which we're we'll get into your book and I think that'll even have more impact once our listeners understand what no place to lie is about mm-hmm. uh now you you waited you said 1981 mm-hmm. that you made the promise to your brother, David, that you were going to write this book. That's right. Yes.
0: I mean, I was actually over in the States um, on the 1st of March, 1981. Um, in fact, I visited Vancouver. I love Vancouver so much. I didn't get to visit Vancouver Island where you're based, you uh, But I was and at, at that point on the 1st of March, 1981, I was in St. Louis. I was in St. Louis. Um, in, in uh, on the banks of Mississippi and having lunch with some friends, and I had a call from my father in Yorkshire, which is in the north of England. And my father was distraught um, because he had to break to me the news that my younger brother David had died. Um, and I'd been in a, in the states for about two months. Um, I was 22 then, and my and David was would have been 20, not quite 21. Um, so I tell the story about how that happened and in, in no place to lie, but I, you know, came back home as soon as I, as soon as I could, and, um, then met up with my parents and, and my father found, my father had found my brother in a remote country mansion, um, on the, on the 1st of March, um, 1981. And he, my my brother was caretaking for this for for this mansion and my dad had gone over after they'd been on holiday um you know my mum had been on holiday so they went over and they were planning to have lunch with him um and uh, tragically my father found my brother dead um and he you know the, the back door was open um and my my there were there were a lot of both empty bottles. There'd been some drinking. My brother was by the side of a sofa, and above something that he, my father initially thought was a stick. Now trigger warning here, which I probably should say, you know, this is this was the most devastating thing. And the stick wasn't a stick, but it was a shotgun. Uh, so my father could not, and I don't think ever accepted during his life that my brother might have taken his own life Uh, and he so he maintained it was either an accident or that somebody had broken in and there'd been a struggle and my brother had died that way Um, so there was a there was an investigation by the police here and then um and then there was a the first inquest and in the first inquest Um, the result of that was a verdict of suicide, which my father felt was a stain on my brother's character, a stain on the family. And it couldn't possibly have ever happened that way. And we had to over, you know, we had to appeal against it and get a decision which he felt would be right. So, um, you know, during that year, again, which I talk about in the book, I, I'd found various things out. Um, I ended up having a relationship with my brother's best friend, who was a sheep farmer down in the West Country in Devon. Um, And uh, he, I've called him in the book, Nick Kane. Um, Nick told me that he and my brother had talked about taking their own lives because they each had a difficult relationship with their father's uh, so it was something that they talked about. I mean, you know, they were young, they were 20. Um, yeah. And I think, that, somebody told me later on, Joe. I don't know if you've heard this as well, that actually all the all the connections in between the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain don't all come together until you're about 25, 26. And so in your early 20s, you kind of feel that you're immortal. And so I think, you know, it, Young men at that age are actually quite vulnerable, um, and I anyway. So they 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 had talked about it, and I became convinced that David had had taken his life. But I also knew, in a way, even though I was only twenty three, I knew that my dad needed to maintain that you know fiction, that belief, to get him through his life, um, and my mum probably. Similarly, so I couldn't challenge it, you know, openly, publicly, while they were alive. Uh, my dad sadly died in nine, in two thousand and fourteen, and then my mum died in two thousand and seventeen. Uh, yeah. And then I thought, okay, now, is my chance to write the book because you know, there's they they it wouldn't hurt them, you know, they they they'd left this earth. Um. Although my mother then uh, left another left another secret, which I had never seen coming at all. So, uh, yeah. and I thought, okay, so I've got to write about that in the book. And oh boy, I you know I didn't know if I needed to write one book or two books or how it was all going to work. So, it took me a while to to work through the material and uh, and write the book. Well,
1: you your um you're writing ah oh, it's it's very nice they sound weird but when i started reading it i felt a comfort because when i st- i used to hate reading as a child and then when i started reading my influences were all uk authors. really wow God. yeah so when i started reading your book it was that voice i thought I recognize this okay like it's wow I don't want to say that UK writers write differently from Canadian authors but I we we do because we come from different surroundings different influences Mm -hmm. I guess what I'm trying to say is I remember I just I started reading it and I thought this feels good this is this is this is it's this is comfort this I don't want to say it's like chicken (laughs) soup but I thought this is good okay (laughs) lovely feedback Joe. thank you thank you Thinking about your book, I me- I what I remember on page eighty two, before you get your dog Cleo, which is a, a Gordon mm-hmm. Setter, you write, all the humans seem somehow at fault. David's death has shone a searchlight on our family, on everyone. You were grieving, your brother. You know your brother has taken your own his own life. Uh, your your parents, you know, I could just imagine the turmoil you're going Mm. through, feeling the subject of whispers. Did you, I'm just wondering, did you, for I'm thinking in terms of closure, did you ever kind of uncover why David did what he did? You know, I think
0: writing the book um, became a bit of a quest for me to, to sort out all the different threads and strands and Think about you know why it might have happened for him. Um, I mean, I, I came up with twelve factors, which I've included at the at the end of the book. And you know, the first one actually is isolation. Um, we have a really deep need; it's kind of hardwired into us as human beings to connect. It's you know we we don't do very well when we're on our own um, and that's borne out by people who live you know the fact that people who live on their own tend to die younger they may drink more they may get ill more it's it's um you know we need to survive and thrive we need that that deep human connection and david was living in a very remote place um he was seeing my parents i think once a week um but i I'd, I'd you know hot-footed it to America I was I was actually desperate to get away from my family and, and kind of start stretching my own wings and and um you know being myself and so I'd, I'd had this this holiday started in New York went over to San Francisco St Louis I spent some time in in Canada in Vancouver so I was away for two months and I probably sent my brother a if- one or two postcards and my parents, you know, maybe a few more, but he, he was on his own. So that's, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a rubbish thing to have happen. And I think we're all at the moment actually feeling that particularly keenly. I mean, I just feel like I've got kind of empty arms syndrome. I, I need hugs. I need more hugs. You know, I'm lucky I live I live um, here with Tim and uh, my younger daughter, who's 21 and at Leeds University, has come back in and, and, and the holidays, you know, safely. But so I've seen her from time to time. But, it, you know, it, this is tough. This is a really tough endurance test that we're going through at the moment. And I think that when we come out of, on the other side, you know, sometimes people say when we, we get back to being normal. But I, it's never going to be normal. It's just it's not. It's not oh, yeah. the new normal; it's the new new, and part oh, of that will yeah. be appreciating the things that we had, you know, and that we had we've had to give up over over this time. So, anyway, I think for David, isolation was a huge key. Um, I think there's also, you know, this whole thing about toxic masculinity and shame, and um, he did have a difficult relationship with my dad. Um, my dad was a very clever man, a lawyer. He'd gone to Cambridge he, he was the first in his generation to to go to university and he'd studied classics, so Greek and Latin and then he became a solicitor and he set up his own practice yeah. um, you know he's a man of the mind, loved the arts um, loved culture. My, my brother was more of a kind of practical person he loved fishing he loved looking at the stars through his telescope he loved motorbikes his main passion actually as he got older was motorbikes um and my yeah. father I didn't I think didn't really accept who he was you know he w- was always wanting him to be something else than he, um, he was so that's hard yeah. as well um yeah but you know there was a, there was another um there was another thing that I only found out at my mum's funeral which was from another friend of my brother's who we've kept in touch with over the years, and he told me, and he said, I've never I've never said this to anybody before, Helen. But when uh, David and I were little and they were playing at Ivanhoe, they used to have these kind of games, dress up in armour and you know, pretend to be knights and do all this stuff. And David said to him with a very clear and purposeful voice, I don't want to live after I'm 20. I don't want to get old. I don't, like, I don't wow. like old people. I don't like their smells. I don't like, I just, I don't want to have that. I don't want to be old, which is wow. huge, isn't it? Oh, and Christopher yeah. had um, held that, well, for, you know, for the same period of time, for, for actually probably longer, yeah. for over 50 years before he told me about it. And he said, I you know, I just didn't, as a boy, I didn't know what to do with David telling me that. And he, he tried wow. to, you know, he said, oh, don't be so silly. But um, he said, I, you know, I always, always remembered it. So it, it in a way, David had kind of decided, even when he was quite young, that he was not going to be long on this planet. So, wow. you know, it's kind of pre wow. pre, in a way, I always think that, you know, the voices in our head, our internal conversation is the most important voice that we have. You know, so it's the most important conversation we have. And for lots of us, we have some pretty rubbish inner voices going on. You know, that inner yep. chat can be quite undermining and critical and so on. But I think David's inner voice was telling him, you know, don't live beyond, beyond being 20. And so that's
1: and that's what happened. Jeez, jeez. You have also in this book some very just beautiful moments. Thanks and the one that just there are even some of the small moments where when you return to the UK from the US mm. and your David had borrowed your car and you mention about you you get your car you get in your car and you turn the key which David had been driving and you feel mm. his presence Can you share a, about that moment <laughs>
0: Well, it was it was a huge moment. Um, I had this little yellow Renault Five um, car. Had a fun little gear stick, uh, kind of un- just it was on the uh, steering wheel, just on on the left hand side. And I can remember opening the car. Yeah. I mean, the police would have taken their, their fingerprints. So I was kind of saying, okay, so the last person that was in this car was not the police. and then it wasn't the police. It would, you know, sorry, it it wasn't David. It would have been the police, but nonetheless. Oh, it just you know in the car and and uh, got ready to turn the key, put the key in the ignition, and turn it, and feeling his presence um there. And then suddenly he was there. He was sit- sitting sitting yeah. in the passenger seat next to me. never saw him, but i he there was a, he had a very distinct smell. We probably all do. I mean, we don't necessarily tune into it that much, do we? But it was kind of like, motorbikes and fishing and and uh, that awful lynx um lynx thing that people used to used to spray on them and a really powerful smell it wasn't just a faded version of of him it was just you know he was there um so yeah. i kind of turned turned towards the passenger seat and said hello david because it just seemed you know it seemed to really be rude like not to yeah. not to talk to him and then uh, and then and then I set off or, or we set off and I went to go and collect, um, collect my dog, Cleo, who you've talked about, the, the Gordon Setter, who was my huge comfort at this time. She had the silkiest ears. Um, and, you know, dogs, I always feel dogs default mechanism is uh, default mode is like happy, isn't it? You know, that's yeah. that. They're, uh, yeah base at root they are happy so i knew that when i got clear i could just kind of bury myself into her fur and uh, she she'd be there for me um
1: and then they know when you need oh, comfort boy don't they, know. they
0: don't they just, just yeah yeah if you if yeah. you need it they're there they're they're kind of glued to you, to the side of your yeah. leg somehow <laughs> so, uh, and they kind <laughs> of also bring themselves down a couple of gears don't they they just sort of get gentler, I find, or yeah, I mean, in the moments when I've really needed, needed that comfort, um, the different dogs in my life um, have provided that. So I, you know, I, I'm, I'm definitely, I love dogs. I absolutely love dogs. It's really nice that we have that connection.
1: (laughs) Yes. Now, David talks with his best friend, Mm -hmm. Nick. And, you know, he mentions about committing suicide and when the first coroner's inquest happened nick mentions this conversation to you but you didn't you didn't you know mention it to anyone at the inquest and was that because you were trying to protect uh the friendship you had with with
0: nick well i think the thing was that um i was never called in evidence to the first inquest um nor indeed to the second inquest, um, but the, the first inquest it was it was really done in a hurry. Um, the first inquest mm-hmm. was on a Friday. Um, it was in Retford in in Nottinghamshire, and the coroner had six cases to get through on that day, uh, which is wow. a lot. Huh? And um, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. I subsequently found out I my, this is something that my father had hidden from me, but that my father really did not like the coroner. Who was a very um, sort of bumptious little man. I mean, my father did say that to him, but I, I didn't realize the kind of intensity of the dislike between the two of them. Um, and uh, he was very dismissive of my father. He did He wouldn't. Uh, he wouldn't call in evidence the uh, the pathologist um, and the gun shop owner who had sold a gun to David. Wanted to. Tra- demonstrate how impossible it would have actually been to to use the gun that he sold to my brother as you know as a weapon to kill himself unless unless you had very long arms actually my brother as it happened did have long arms but you know but it was it was a rush job and I wasn't there so nobody had asked me nobody had um you know, called me in evidence. I wasn't a witness. I hadn't been asked to make a statement about that. And I'd already learned, actually, as a lawyer, having done a bit of training before then, having done a law degree and started my training to be a solicitor, that you never answer questions that you're not, that you're not asked, you know, only ever answer the question that is put to you. So I, you know, and I felt, well, I mean, they may you know, I mean, part of me actually was sort of holding on to, well, you know, maybe at the time, at that instant when David was maybe he'd been I know he'd been drinking. He was three times over the alcohol, or the drink drive limit um, in this country when when he died. Um, I know he'd been drinking, but, you know, and he'd been he obviously had the gun. But, you know, but there was a possibility that he may have been trying to clean it or I don't know, you know, it. One never knows. I wasn't there in that last instant. And I, yeah. you know, there was a possibility that he might have thought, oh, sh- shall I, shan't I, shall I, shan't I, shall I? And, you know, then when he's going seesawing backwards and forwards, and then suddenly, bang, uh, you know, it happens. Yeah. And we don't, I didn't know what was in his head. So I knew he'd had the conversations with Nick. Nick was absolutely raw with desperation thinking that you know not only had his best friend died but he f- felt for a while that he should kill himself too uh, so oh, you know yeah. and I thought okay absolutely not on my watch you know I'm gonna love this guy back into life and you know I I, yeah. I can't bear I you know it was it was so hard to deal with David's death, yeah. but the thought of Nick also dying was you know beyond any resources that I had at that time, or perhaps ever, you know. So we we had a relationship, we fell in love, we took care of one another. Um yeah. and that was actually quite private and certainly I you know I would have been very uh reluctant to tell any any anybody about about those those private conversations you know but yeah looking back on it um if anybody had had asked me the question you know what what else do you know helen or what specifically do you know about what have you been told by any of david's friends i would have had to have answered but nobody ever asked yeah
1: okay well and i think you and nick you you were healing mm-hmm. each other. I, when I'm I'm reading about your relationship, yeah. and um, I think Nick gave you strength, and I think I think you also gave him peace, and vice versa. I i could, and it's, it comes. It's a sounds. It comes across as a special yeah. relationship. There you wrote two paragraphs on. I, I've noted it here on page, one forty five, which are beautiful. And do you mind reading those two paragraphs? Because you, you make reference to elephants and it, it was just okay. it's beautiful. Just one moment. Okay. I'd
0: read that when an elephant looks as if it's dying, the other elephants in the herd do anything and everything they can to keep the elephant alive, bringing him or her food, spraying them with water, touching and stroking with their trunks, even trying to make love. There was that quality about us determined that no one else was going to die. We had to make sure each other lived. That's certainly how I felt about it. I knew that for him, suicide was enough of an option for him to talk about it. And I wanted to obliterate that option from his world. For him to feel that life was worth living. I wanted him to open up to the world, travel, meet new people, Escape the pressure from his parents just for a while as he was certain to go back there. It was in his blood, his lungs, his genes. He needed to go away long enough to find himself so that when he came back, he was choosing the farm from a wholehearted perspective.
1: That's beautiful. <laughs> oh, uh, that's beautiful. Those moments in your work that I just... I I sit back and go,
0: oh, so 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 kind of you know it's it's so strange this this book that I you know it felt at one point as if it was like my soul writing it all I was having to do was kind of turn up and open my laptop up and then the words came was you know um, it was the funniest thing it was sort of like the first I spent a year writing drivel. Um, so, uh, and I was writing a heck of a lot about my mum being in a care home and that had been quite (laughs) burdensome. So I, I, I probably wrote about a year's worth of, of moaning. And then somehow I managed to kind of tap into this, this other seam, um, like a coal seam, like mining and finding the coal. And then it, and then it just came. And then the most bizarre thing was that um, you know, the, the book would wake me up in, in the night, like at three o'clock in the morning and go, in chapter 21, you need to put this bit in. And so I'd, I'd to, I had a um, a little notepad with, you know, and a pencil. So I would just jot it down and then, you know, try and go back to sleep again. But sometimes the book would go, and I, you know, I think it was thought that I probably, um, <coughs> sorry, uh, you know, needed to wake up. and So
1: I couldn't go back to sleep. So then I had to get up and
0: and, and write that bit before. Before I
1: think sleep. Well, my my writing friends and I, we call that moaning first draft (laughs) porridge. We all do it. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great phrase. So, Helen, between the first inquest and your father's court case to quash the decision, you see how your father is behaving. And that's when you come to the decision to write this book. This is in 1981. Yeah. And I know as I'm reading, I kept asking myself, why did Helen want to write this book? Um, uh, Was it so she could heal? Um, You know, because to me, it's it's painful. It's it's, it's painful. And um, so I was wondering whether it's because you wanted to heal. And then you explain why. And I thought, okay, I understand. And do you want to explain to our listeners your reasons for, I know you've touched upon it a little bit, but your reasons why you wanted to write this book?
0: Um, I think there were, you know, it's it's complex. Um, I think I wanted to set the record straight to to the extent that um, I think that my, you know, this, this was David's. Probably this was David's choice and that my father, when he said it hadn't happened, it took that away from from David. And so I wanted to, to talk about that. But I I mean I really I want to raise awareness of of um of suicide and of the vulnerability, you know, the, of, of of young men and older men. Actually the in the UK, um currently the the biggest, you know, the the sort of age range for for men taking their own lives um, is more like forty to to fifty. That's a big one. Oh, um, wow. Three and it's three times as as many men take their lives as women. So, and it's so uh, kind of like not talked about. Um, in fact, I had to. Uh, I haven't put this in the book, but I, you know, I had to self publish. Yeah. Although I've been published in the past by Penguin and Simon and Schuster you know, no, um, no traditional pub- publisher wanted to touch this book. I mean, I didn't try for years and years, but the, the, mm-hmm. the, the toes I put into the water just, you know, I was rejected very firmly. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now, you know, trying to publicize the book, um, people, the media are picking up on the story of my, of my mum and what happened there, but um, they will not touch the whole issue of of suicide and I think it's almost like a fear that if you mention it somebody else you know somebody else will take their life their life whereas I'm you know the reality is is that if if somebody is thinking about it it is a really good idea to ask them about it you know if if that if they are thinking about it and to open up that channel and to tell them how much you care about them and how much they matter to you you know I think that's the joy of a relationship it's the it's the magic um I mean I, I, it's taken me a heck of a long time to to come to that realization because I thought that relationships needed to all to be about the structure you know do you need to have a mummy and a daddy and the children with within that structure whereas actually it's so much about the the weave of the relationship and showing your joy in someone else and telling them that they matter you know you matter because i matter i matter because you matter you know yeah. so saying saying you're there for them i'm i'm if you can be say it uh, you know i'm i'm here for you you know let, let me let me listen and so it's for those kinds of reasons that I've I've written this book, and I and I was brought up in a fat. I mean, I, you know, we lived in this extraordinary house that was built in 1689 in William and Mary's time. It was had eight bedrooms and a roof terrace wow. and a pony paddock and blah blah blah. You know, <laughs> it's kind of there's a drawing of it in the British Museum. It's a beautiful house, and from the outside we must have looked like a kind of shiny red apple, you know, um, my beautiful mum, my clever dad, you know, their children. But inside, the worms were eating away at it because we didn't talk about the stuff that that matters. You know, I mean, I've never been that good (laughs) at small talk in a kind of, you know, in in a sort of party situation. I'm, I'm much more interested in talking about things where we connect with one another, you know, people's passions about what they, what they yearn to do, about what they love to do, um, as opposed to, you know, what happened at the doctor's last week. I'm, I'm really not, I'm not very good at dealing with all that kind of stuff, but I do love to connect with people. And I, and I, and I think, you know, the thing that helps our, our society, our world now is pretty divided yeah. and, 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 broken in a way. And, you know, we've been set up as this side against that side. This, you know, if you believe this, then I, I will, you know, you are my opposition. Yeah. And we need to find our way back to one another. We need to reconnect. And the only way we do that is actually through talking, um, and being, um, and being, having the courage to be vulnerable with one another and yeah. to and to tell our stories that you know we are we we that's how we connect we we tell stories about our lives we tell narratives about our lives and telling our stories listening to other people's stories listening to what's really going on for them yeah. is so key and so yeah I've kind of spent most of my life being a lawyer but now yeah. I've kind of I'm opening up to this Whole new chapter, which is about kind of the alchemy of connection, and um, that and my book is the kind of platform. I I haven't really, you know, it's like I only discovered that this is what I want to do with the rest of my life when I was writing the book and when I've been kind of getting it out there into the world, and that's, but that's what it seems to me is the purpose. Of me being on the planet at the moment is to to talk about the alchemy of connection, to talk about the healing power of talking, because yeah. we can pop pills, we can um, make, you know, drink ourselves senseless, and that may provide a sort of temporary um, relief or, you yeah. know, it doesn't last very long, but, you know, yeah. and then sometimes we need more of that, but yeah. it doesn't heal, it just numbs, or it just makes us feel something in a kind of artificial way. We have to, you know, be brave, actually, and yeah. talk about our vulnerabilities and and, uh, and reconnect.
1: I agree. And I think it was, uh, now, bear with me, um, right now, months, days, are just all one big mush. Okay. <laughs> Aren't they just? Wow. Yeah. I believe it was the end of January, January 28th, mental health awareness day Mm -hmm. and i'm you know as you're saying we have to talk about these difficult subjects such as suicide Mm -hmm. you know and and not just give it a day and especially you know isolation you mentioned isolation what are we all doing now we're we're isolated Mm -mm -mm. and i i one of the reasons why I I want I decided to start a podcast is just because I thought I've got to have conversations with people. You know? We right? do as we're you're right because it's being stuck in a box because that's what it feels like is not healthy, right? So, Absolutely not. It I mean it no. it it really isn't. We're in our own kind of
0: we're in our own prisons in a way but then I you know I think back to Nelson Mandela and then what he did in his prison and you know the amazing things actually he did and setting up a university there and you know I mean we can conjure things with our minds we can thank goodness talk to one another like you and I are talking now you know we are so many ways aren't there you know the phone FaceTime podcast your wonderful podcast you know Zoom all these ways we can at although
1: we just can't hug like (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. so uh, taking it up giving having a little bit of levity here the other thing I liked with your book is you you can you bring in time and you bring in time because you're connecting it with events and real life events and you mentioned about lady diana and (laughs) prince charles getting married and i remember that i remember i I was back to being a teenager because i was a lady diana fan oh god she i i love her you know i was lucky enough to meet her later on yeah and i remember racing like talking about her wedding i remember racing home from school Mm -hmm. see because you brought back a memory and i raced home from school and my mom and sister and i we ate dinner in front of the TV, which was uh, <laughs> special. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and we watched her wedding. And I, and you mentioned about the black dress before she was married. Yes. And I remember when she wore that black dress and before there was Twitter, everyone was a Twitter about her in this black dress. Yes. And, uh, I found that by mentioning these real life events the reader gets a sense of time and I live 10,000 kilometers away from you but you, I've still managed to connect with your book yes and, thank you and like you said you did so you did meet lady diana so as a lady diana fan can you please tell me how did that feel like or, or how did that come about okay so this was in um this was in
0: 1991 and i had just had my first daughter who is called unity um it always tickles me pink actually because when you know when governments are kind of changing they're always calling for unity and i'd say go on darling you need... <laughs> anyway sorry <laughs> I, I digress so uh... <laughs> that's <okay. laughs> So she was a baby, um, and I, you know, so and I was I'd put on a bit of weight in my first pregnancy. So I, I had this amazing eighties sort of nineties power jacket. Uh, uh, it was bright magenta silk with a sort of dark black collar, massive shoulders. Yeah. Um, yeah, and before and so and I at the time I was actually the chair of the management committee of a charity called. Um, the National Council for One Parent Families. So, I, I, didn't, I got this position, and we had this uh, really mega charity event organised alongside Bernardo's, who's a much bigger charity, whose patron was was Princess Diana. And okay. we had we put on a, an opera at the Colosseum in London with Bryn Terfel singing in the Barber of Seville. So it's, it was oh. mega. Um, And we were the kind of like poor cousins, you know, National Council for Parent Families. There there was just the great and good and glitzy on the Bernardo side. Although we had very clever women in our, you know, uh, journalists and authors and people like Marina Warner and Celia Brayfield. um, uh, um, So, this event was happening and, um, I was, so I kind of got myself ready, put my jacket on, hides a multitude of sins, eh? And, <laughs> and then said goodbye to my baby and, and just held her against me. <laughs> then she, so she vomited up on, 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 on my shoulder. And they do, you know, yeah. um, so, I, oh, no. so anyway, I handed her back to my husband, cleaned it off as best I could, but you know that, I don't know, if you've ever had that but i think it's quite a common experience that you kind of turn your head to one side don't you, you just get the faintest whiff of babies of baby, baby vomit <laughs> so okay so so in the so after so uh after the first half of of the barber of seville then we kind of recon we there was a reception and princess diana was there um and uh you know the the chair of the of the uh, the of is saying, hey, you, Helen, you need to meet Princess Diana. She wants to meet you. And I went, no, she doesn't. She wants oh. want to meet me. You know, it's all these other yeah. people. I said, yes, 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 come on. So I, I went to meet her and she was a goddess. Okay, yeah. there's just, there's no getting away from it. She's tall. <laughs> she's gorgeous. She radiated light. I mean, there was something yeah. about her which was, so man- magical! I'm really not making this up. It was like yeah. meeting a light being in a, you know, in a, in the body of Princess Diana. And um, and so I kind of went to the front of the queue. All these people wanting to talk to her, and she turned to me and she and she said, "Isn't it, isn't it wonderful when you get up off your backside after you've been watching an opera?" <laughs> and I, yeah, I went, oh, "Princess, Ed, backside!" What do I do now? <laughs> so <laughs> so you know, I kind of, I witted on about something, I think. And, 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 but she, you know, she, one thing that often gets missed out about Princess Diana is how well prepared she was. She knew where I lived. She knew when my baby was born, what she was called. She knew a lot about me um, and she knew a lot about, other. you know, and that I was I was by no means a big player in that room. But she was. Yeah. She was amazing. I, I think, you know, of all the people who've been on the planet to teach us about communication, Princess yeah. Diana is right up there because she communicated from the heart. She was also, you know, a little bit funny. And yeah. uh, um, she could just connect with anybody, whoever it was, she would be able to reach out. So, I yeah, I, I just I got a picture of, of me, my, our meeting um, you can't actually see the baby sick on it, I. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, and we were kind of intent in conversation, and uh, I just, I was really, I didn't even notice that somebody was taking pictures, but uh, I was so yeah. enraptured by her.
1: So thank you, universe, for giving me that opportunity. Ah, oh, that is a great opportunity. I'm glad. I'm glad you shared it. Thank I you. really am, <laughs> uh, because you. We do. We need. We need moments like that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. In your book. You mentioned second secrets. Um, and uh, this, you know, and I can see the theme because your mother, Monica, has a secret that she took to the grave. Mm-hmm. And when I finished reading this, I thought I could see a theme here. And the theme is we have to start talking. We, mm-hmm. you know, it's more than 15 minute sound bites, it's more than tweets, it's more than Instagram posts. We have to start having a real conversation. Yes. And I feel, and you mentioned about, for example, your mother, and I know my mother was born in 1928, mm-hmm. and you call them the silent generation. Yeah. Because I know with my mother, there were just certain things a woman did not talk about. Absolutely. You just, you know, mm-hmm. you do not talk about. So can you share with your listeners I don't, I don't want it to come out I'm trying to come out politely I don't want to I don't want to say can you tell us what your mother's secret was I don't want to do that right but so polite but yeah yeah
0: but just well, people people can research it anyway can't they I mean it's you know I yeah, yeah I mean so i and I this blindsided me I had I had not even an inkling of an inkling that this was going yeah. to happen um my my mom had uh gone into a a care home she fought so long not to go into care she hated anybody looking after her but she went into a care home um, in West Wittering in, in mm-hmm. Sussex not far away from us on the um, 13th of December and very sadly she died on the 21st so only eight days later and uh, when I was when I'd taken her to the care home I was kind of helping her sort through her things and on the top of her papers. Um mm-hmm. she had this sort of she had a big bundle of papers called her memoir. And I I still have not read I've, I haven't brought myself to read this yet. I will, yeah. but not yet. Anyway there's a handwritten envelope on there and um I read the first sentence of it when she was in the loo and it said um or should I say bathroom? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And it said um I I am I'm different. I'm not as other people, um, but God. And it, it went on to say, "But God has made me this way." And so I was thinking. Oh my God. Anyway, then she came out of the of the bathroom, so I I hurriedly put the envelope away and didn't look at it again. And and then, sadly, she died. And then you know, a few days after that, um, that I was nice? I was well, it was like probably a couple of couple of weeks after that. I was looking. I was getting ready for work. The papers now were back in, in, in uh, my flat with Tim and um I picked up the envelope and started reading. Mm-hmm. And I came to a word. And I went, yeah. what? Yeah. And Tim was passing and said, is anything wrong? And I said, what do, what do you think that says, Tim? Mm-hmm. And um, he said, and it's quite hard to d- decipher my mum's writing because her L almost looks like a kind of upside down J. But anyway, he looked at it and he said, well, I think that says lesbians. And I said, yeah. I think that's what it says as well. And it, so yeah. she'd written on this envelope that uh, I don't, you know, I don't know how other lesbians cope. And yeah. that and then she talked about the affliction, which is still desperately. Oh, So, you know, poor mum about the affliction of of being gay. Uh, And then she named women that she'd had relationships with, you know, on this envelope. So she'd gone to her grave and then she'd left this to be found basically by me, I suppose, to afterwards. So, yeah, I mean, whoa. So so one of the people that she'd named um, was Gwen who was an old family friend and I'd known her for, well, decades and known her ever since I was little. Um, and, uh, I, um, so I, I, you know, I ended up by contact. Gwen had helped me a lot with my mum going to a care home. She was a nurse. She was a matron at Doncaster Royal Infirmary. And, uh, I, so I contacted her and said, you know, mum has actually left him um, an envelope and I'd really like to talk to you about what she what she said to me and Gwen responded by email to say Helen I've been expecting you to talk to me about this all my life I'm very happy I'm very happy to answer any questions you may have yeah so so then you know it all unfolded and you know I I mean gosh you know I've got three children who are young adults now and more open-minded people, you know, be it'd be hard to find. So when when I told them about it, that well, for, actually, we often just burst into burst into laughter because it just seemed so surreal. I, you know, I I mean, I wish I had been able to behave in a more elegant way, but I just laughed because it was just yeah. extraordinary, and they laughed too, yeah. and they said, "Oh, but Mum, that's so cool! We've got a gay granny! Yeah. We've got a gay granny! Wow, <laughs> cool!" <laughs> And, yeah um, so their reaction you know was very open uh I wish she'd have known actually how open we'd have been um yeah. but it was a massive shock to my auntie Judy her younger yeah. sister yeah. um because not only had my mum kept the secret from her but Gwen had kept the secret from Judy because Gwen first met my mum at Judy's 12th birthday party okay so um i mean judy was reeling and i actually i was we were really reeling because we you know we thought well, did everybody else know and we didn't know or you know what had what had happened so um you know even now there's a part of me that thinks i don't know mum's just going to come through the door and oh it's all a joke because you know, right? it, yeah. it just it seems so extraordinary i mean the um we used to go down on holiday to uh, – to. we had a holiday – my parents had a holiday cottage in Cornwall. And just this weekend I've had several messages from people I know down there and, you know, they're, they're still in a state that they're now finding out about it and they're still in a state of disbelief about it because my parents were a big part of their community too. And nobody guessed. You know, we hadn't yep. – we ju- just didn't know. Just didn't know. Well, it's <sighs> –
1: it's just, I, I feel sad for her mm-hmm. that she couldn't come out, but I understand why she didn't, yeah. knowing my mother's generation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She wrote down, she left her memoir. So, in a way, I think she knew she couldn't come out while she was alive, but she had her memoir. And it's, and I, I, I'm sure she wanted you to find out. So, mm. in passing, in death, who she felt most comfortable being could finally be—I don't want to say exposed, but be acknowledged. Yeah, yeah. makes sense. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. So now, now I'm kind of talking a, a little. Well, now the book's just coming out into the world. My, you know, this baby is just coming out into the world. The, yeah. um, in a way, you know, Joe, I feel that she get, she left me a this gift because if
1: yeah.
0: if my book was just about well just i don't know quite I said that but yeah. you know if it was about david only alone yeah. um nobody would be touching it with a barge pole um they would yeah. be avoiding it you know and and it would not have got the 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 you know the the publicity it has but the fact that my mum came out and my fact that i've included that in the book that's where you know, the papers and uh, radio stations and, you know, d- different media are are focusing. So there's a piece coming out in a magazine over here called Prima on the 25th of February um, and also a piece about secrets, which may well be in the Daily Mail. Um, so they're picking up that story. They're not picking up the David story, but the more the book gets read as a whole and there's a theme mm just as you identify in it about the importance of talking then people yeah. will also look at the um at the at the suicide aspect as well so I, actually i feel like my mother i don't know whether it's conscious or unconscious she was a, she was a very deep woman it was very hard to to re, you know read what was really going on with her as you can tell but i feel mm. that she's given me this gift um, that I could wrap up with in my book, and then give my book out into the world because I'll, because a wider audience
1: I hope will read it. And and your YouTube channel, uh-huh. it, it's it's ta- it's about having the conversation. I'm just flipping through my notes here um, because I need notes. Okay. Yeah. Hello. It's better to talk. Okay. Your YouTube channel. That's exactly what we need to do. We need to well, do. you know, it's funny. I think I must have started off my YouTube
0: channel about the time that you started off your wonderful podcasts, um, and and I was prompted to do so by um, a, a writing coach that I that I brought on board just to kind of get help get me focused. Um, yeah. Called Gabriella Blandy, and um, she and I had a bit of a disaster, actually. I'll confess this to you and your listeners um, about publicity um, to start yeah. off with, because the publishers got a um recommended a publicist to me and uh Mm. she she did she you know prepared this brief and she and I read it and I went oh my I can't do this and in she got three things completely wrong she said instead of a entry-level Russian shotgun she called it a Mm. revolver which is all more James Bond and a bit glamorous she got the name name of yeah. my father wrong she got you know other facts wrong and I thought and when I said you know this is you've made all these mistakes she she said well that you know I'm worried about the about the your extreme reaction Helen and and whether or not do you have the mental resilience to be able to get this book out into the world and I thought I might you know I've run that <laughs> as you can tell I said all sorts of things which I can't possibly share on my on your channel but Okay, I think that's rubbish. Yeah, thank, right? you. thank you very much for that, for that interpretation. Yeah, that's it. that's exactly what I said. Yeah. And uh, and my writing coach said, well, you know, get get out there, Helen. Create your own YouTube channel, and then you can tell the stories. And it it's almost like a kind of oh, I don't know, how, you know, like a javelin, and I'm throwing it in a true way. Or I, I wish I could think of a better metaphor, actually. But it's you know, it's from my heart and soul. To yours and there isn't any interference in it i can I can tell you what actually happened as opposed to somebody interpreting what happened and then making mistakes so yeah hello it's better to talk and um it's free to subscribe I would love you love love love, love you to to come along to it and uh and and listen to all your listeners you are extremely welcome and it, you know it's yeah. it's uplift I hope it's uplifting because. We need to have fun and we need to have joy and light in our lives as well. So we, yeah, yes, let's talk about the tough stuff, but also let's, I don't know, let's play a little bit and let's, uh, let's experience the joy. Because once, when you experience the tough stuff, it's almost like, um, is it Khalil Gibran says, the more suffering you have, you kind of get scooped out inside. So the more you can fill up with, with joy um, so it's about yeah. experiencing all the feels and, you know, human, humanity, human feelings, human experience in all its entirety. So would love you to
1: join. Well, I, I know I'm already subscribed. Oh, you. Thank <laughs> um, you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I find with you doing your YouTube channel, when you were describing it, the word that jumped to my mind, which I wrote down here was authenticity oh. by having you do it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. How do you feel now? I mean, the book's Mm. out. Do you feel a great relief? What are you hoping readers take away after reading your book? Um,
0: Well, I hope that they will be uh, strengthened and get some courage, um, you know, in dealing with their own life and kind of stepping into the arena as Brené Brown talks about it. Um, I don't know. You know, your listeners will be kind of familiar with her. She's, I think, another goddess in the in the planet. But you know, she talks a lot about mm-hmm. um, the importance of of kind of getting out there and talking about stuff. So I I hope it will encourage people to talk. I hope it will be a kind of talking point. Um, I, you know, it's it. Is, I know it's a powerful read. Um, and I've had a lot of people say, I had a message from a friend today who's a QC. And she said, "Well, this book is amazing, but I haven't been able to put it down. So I didn't sleep last night, and now I haven't done all the chores that I'm supposed to have done for the weekend. So it's amazing, <laughs> and also I wish I'd known about how powerful it was because uh, I could have set aside some different time. So it, yeah, I, yeah. I think it'll make you feel something. I hope that it will connect you to your humanity. Um, your your I think it's a lot of people say it's quite relatable." So uh yeah. it's about, you know, living life as a human being on this planet and and getting what we can out of it. And being to me
1: more understanding yeah. of people around us. That's, right? that's
0: thank you for adding that, Joe, because that yeah. you know, we all have our crosses to bear, our demons to grapple with. And I you know, if I didn't know that before, I was a family lawyer for and mediator for thirty-five years, I certainly know it now. You know, a lot of people are carrying huge things around with them so yeah let's be let's people often say be, let's be kind with one another." I think it's it's about gentleness actually it's about being you know allowing yeah. ourselves to be gentle and soft and listening and um and absolutely loving our, our own selves to bits you know that, that's the thing that we also need yeah. to do is kind of fall up fall back in love with ourselves because that's the person that we're with all the time. Um, so best yeah. to love yeah. ourselves.
1: Is there anything you would like to add, Helen? Um, where can people find you on the socials? Oh, gosh. All oh, right. So I am um, mm-hmm. Helen P.
0: Garlic, P for P. Does that make sense? But Helen P. Garlic on uh, yeah. Twitter and Instagram um, and LinkedIn, Helen Garlic. And I'm just about to get my look, website out into the world. And I'm Helen HelenGarlic.com um, on that. I actually nabbed that um, three years ago and it's been taking me such a long time to get around to doing this. You see, the, the daft thing about all of this, said she sounded rather northern, is that um, I'm actually quite introverted. <laughs> and that, so I, you know, I kind of go out into the world, but then I have to kind of come back and, and hide under the duvet for a little bit. <laughs>
1: There's times when I I sign up for things and then when it comes around, I'm like, oh my God, why did I do this?
0: (laughs) That's right. I really should be cutting my toenails now.
1: So, yeah,
0: you know, yeah, exactly. So I've had, I mean, my website designer is the most patient woman on the universe. I think with any luck the end of February, that'll be out. So you can find me on HelenGarlic.com. And, and uh, yeah, you know, there's all sorts of possibilities happening, but um, you can find me there and, You know, let's share this journey together. And thank you so much, Joe. For this has been a wonderful
1: opportunity. I love talking to you and and to your listeners out there. No, thank you. Thank you for for. I'm glad the connection work. I worked that. That's good. And I, I'm. You know, it's special for me too because when I started this podcast, I never thought I'd be speaking with authors (laughs) from the UK and um, book promoters from the UK. So it's 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 so cool <laughs> okay and that's what we need more of in our lives i think yeah i think lots of cool yeah. things to happen.
0: yeah yeah I, I would send that yeah. blessing to everybody lots of cool things for you
1: okay, okay helen well have a good I, it's probably evening now have a thank good evening
0: you. i will and uh thank you so much and love and light to you all
1: bye